When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. I'm not worried about, like, how big of a deal must it be for us to invoke this process. I'm just looking at the president in front of me and thinking whether I think they should be removed for office for this behavior. And my answer is absolutely yes. This is Sarah. This is Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Thank you for joining us in this week where we're all just trying to take it all in. We're just taking it all in. There's been a lot. So we are going to talk about the Democratic debate. We are going to talk about all of the testimony that has taken place this week. We are going to try to do that succinctly so that we can all go into a happy weekend where we just hold politics lightly, I think. (laughs) Before we jump in, I want to pick up on an email that we received from Kelly about the fact that court reporters are getting these transcripts out to the world, that this is a high-pressure time to be in the infrastructure side of these hearings. And that is true about the hearings. It is true about the Democratic debate that just happened. There are so many people working so hard in roles like holding a camera for a gazillion hours a day and making sure the microphones work and typing up that testimony and ensuring its accuracy 
There are so many people who enable us as citizens to get all of this information, and we feel so much gratitude for them. So thanks to all of the folks who are hard at it so that we can be more informed participants in our democracy. We also wanted to acknowledge an email we got that we still don't have a budget and that that's an important thing to point out. They do have a continuing resolution until the new date of December 20th. That date is one week after they're scheduled to be on recess and we have the impeachment hearing. And the person who emailed us is a wife of a federal agent whose work is considered essential in the event of a shutdown. But it's all starting to bring back the trauma of last year. And we should all, you know, on top of everything else, probably keep our eye on this whole budget thing. And we will provide an update on that next week. But now the Democratic debate. This was a good one. I mean, I just felt really good watching it. Know if they felt sorry for all of us because we'd been sitting through hours of congressional testimony, but man, that thing kept moving. They covered now. I I don't think anything got particularly deep, and I don't think they sussed out a lot of areas of disagreement between the candidates. But I don't really care because that's not what I come to debates for. I like that they hit a lot of issues that don't often get talked about. This was an all-female moderator panel. And the first two questions went to female candidates, too. So, yeah, it was a good one. I don't disagree with you about things not going too deep, but I really appreciated that they spent more time on foreign policy than we've had in any of these debates. And it did enable people to show a different level of knowledge. I feel like I learned a lot about Andrew Yang, for example, because they asked him some questions that took him out of the freedom dividend territory. And we got to see Mm -hmm. how he thinks about the rest of that role. We got to some distinctions between Senator Booker and Senator Warren, for example, on, yeah, I agree with you on the problem. I would solve it a little differently. And it wasn't really the progressive versus moderate dynamic that they've been stoking in most of these debates as much as it was just like, hey, I really have a different policy prescription for this. Let's talk about it. And I thought it was really interesting and helpful. Well, it Tulsi Gabbard came for Mayor Pete again when it went terribly for her last time. Everybody's itching to bring up with it that you met with Assad. Don't give him the opening. She's I'm just I'm becoming increasingly suspicious of her every day. I'm just going to put that out there. The most generous interpretation was that this was a reach for relevance from Representative Gabbard. And there was a lot of Twitter conversation about how Steve Schmidt on MSNBC just said to her, I thought you were really dishonest in that performance. Just right to her face, he said it. And I respected that he did because I do think that it was a weird strategy to open the debate. Her first remarks were criticism of the Democratic Party in really stark terms that I think don't match much reality from anyone's perspective. And then her foreign policy comments, while sometimes having like hints of important truths in them, have really built into something that I think is mostly about staying in the Twitter sphere, getting donations, you know, racking up people, signing up on her website or whatever. And it's just it is unfortunate and weird. Kamala Harris had an opportunity to go after her, and she kind of half took it. I feel like that's the theme of the evening. Everybody about half took their opportunity to attack other people on the stage, um, especially, you know, one of the big pieces of analysis coming from from all the places is that people didn't go after Pete Buttigieg like everyone expected them to since he was polling higher. 
I think a bunch of things could be going on <laughs> there. My analysis was that people didn't come for Buttigieg in part because they don't want to sort of fuel those polls even more. Like maybe mm-hmm. if we don't treat him like the front runner, it won't really be the case that he is one. I also think there was the sense among everyone like President Obama has weighed in on this race and kind of said, let's be the grownups here. I think the contrast to the way members of the House Intelligence Committee are conducting themselves in these hearings was important. I mean, overall, I felt like everyone made really good choices in just making their cases to the voters for themselves instead of trying to tear someone else down. Yeah, I'm finding this conflict between Obama and Warren. I'm reading a lot of sort of inside baseball reporting that there's always been conflict between Warren and Obama and that it continues Biden got this little dig in about, I'm sure you're not talking about the spotless administration of Barack Obama. And it's really stressing me out. I posted on Insta stories, I feel like I'm being asked to pick between mom and dad in a divorce. I don't really understand the source of this conflict. I, except for the fact that she is a systematic change kind of person and he is a pragmatist. But I don't know. There's got to be more to it than that. I feel like there's got there's some history here that I don't quite have the total context for. But the sort of bubbling below the surface of this conflict is really stressing me out. I cannot speak to any of that. What I would say is that I think Biden would be well served by cutting it out. Dropping out. (laughs) Well, I thought it made him look really small that he took that shot at her right before he gave this closing statement that was supposed to be like, come on, everybody, America is amazing. Let's do this together. Kind of moral authority leadership moment that it seemed really petty to say, I assume you weren't talking about the spotless record of the Obama administration. I think he does himself no favors when he brings that kind of ego to the party. And if he really wants to stand out as this uniquely qualified and experienced person with an unblemished record, which I think is all an overstatement, but if that's his theory of the case, then why engage in that with her? I do think he gave one of his best answers of the debate when they asked him, would you investigate Trump after he's out of office? And I loved his answer about the Department of Justice doesn't work for me. I don't direct them to do anything. They do what they think is right. But I wouldn't direct anybody to do anything. I wouldn't treat it like Trump treats the Department of Justice. I thought that was a really good answer. I wish he gave more answers like that. But I feel like that's the only time he's answered a question in any of the debates where I thought, hmm, that was really good and coherent. I thought that that was a good answer, and I thought the answer about North Korea and China was really good and showed some of that expertise that his supporters really count on from him. The blunder with Senator Harris was terrible, and it, and it really was unfortunate because I do think he was having his best debate performance so far, and he, it may still have been his best debate performance so far, which is kind of a low bar, but... That that was really, really bad because it just so landed in the same spot as where all the criticism of him has been. For those of you who didn't watch, he said he's basically making the point that he's very he has a lot of support among the African-American community. He said, I have the support of the only African-American woman elected to the Senate. I'm assuming he's talking about Carol Mosley Braun. Small problem. There is another African-American woman elected to the Senate. Kamala Harris, who was sitting on the stage, and both her and Cory Booker were like, 
Paula, what? No, that's not true. And she was like, you don't have my endorsement. I'm standing right here. And he was like, I said first. I meant first African-American woman. I was like, whatever, dude. It was so awkward. I feel like this debate, because it was so well moderated, because everybody got some good substantive time in, highlighted that this should not be narrowed to a three-person, four-person race yet. I think there's a lot of room still I thought Amy Klobuchar had a spectacular performance for her. I thought Senator Harris was really great. I don't know. I just feel like this thing is still this thing is still going. Did you feel like you missed anybody that wasn't there? I did not. I didn't either. I mean, I feel like there was a point where Twitter was blowing up when they were talking about affordable housing, about how good Castro's plan is and how he's so good on this, um, that I thought, yeah, I think I would have liked to hear, especially from a former... HUD secretary about affordable housing. I was so happy affordable housing came up to begin with. It was just sort of those like individual issues. Like I bet Jay Inslee wish he was standing up there when they were talking about climate change for the three hot seconds they mentioned it. And especially when they were talking about affordable child care, I would have loved for Senator Gillibrand to still be on the stage. But it's just like those little individual issue things. I'm not sure if I feel like I'm missing, you know, a single candidate comprehensively over the whole debate. I would certainly rather hear Governor Inslee talking about climate change than Tom Steyer. You know, I Tom Steyer. I could do without his presence on the stage, even though I thought he said some interesting things. And look, he's in he's pushing some very hardcore positions. As he started talking about more direct democracy, I thought, whoa, like you have a very big agenda that I think is in a really different place than a lot of these candidates. But I just don't think he needs to be there. I don't think Representative Gabbard needs to hang on anymore. But other than that, I do feel like everyone has a pretty clear role to play, a pretty coherent vision that most of these folks have really learned from the last debates and have improved their performance every time. And again, I just thought the questions were sharp and illuminating. If you haven't watched any of these yet, this is the one that I would give my time to. I did like that Elizabeth Warren in particular seemed to have more particulars sort of speaking to people concerned about her Medicare for all plan, about how she's going to roll it out and how she's going to basically persuade everybody to to get on board with this plan. I thought that was helpful. I just really appreciated that it wasn't one long, you're too progressive, you're too moderate. Like, I'm really glad we went beyond that. And it was just about this is how I'm different instead of this is how I'm right. I much prefer this is how I'm different as opposed to, I'm right, you're wrong. And some of those differences really do boil down to style. Because I think these candidates are so much on the same page about 90% of the issues. And and who you think can actually execute on what they're discussing. And who you want to see when something horrific happens in our country be the voice that tells us where we go from here. And who you want to receive that 2 a.m. phone call. And I think that this was a helpful debate in clarifying those questions. 
Yeah, that was such a good way to phrase that question. There was a couple of times they, particularly with regards to Andrew Yang, like phrase it so he couldn't just go back to the freedom dividend. Ashley Parker from the Washington Post, that was her first debate. I'm happy to let her do all of them. I thought she did an outstanding job. It was also, for what it's worth, like one of the funniest debates, I thought, didn't you? Yes, there were definitely some moments of levity. I just, I, that's a good way to say it. I feel like we got to see more of people's personalities instead of getting hung mm-hmm. up on the specifics of Medicare for all or some or any, you know, it's just we, we, we got to pull out of not that healthcare was unimportant in this debate. I didn't feel like it was at all, but I feel like we got out of out of the mode of this is a debate for journalists and donors and into the mode of this is a debate for Americans to figure out who they actually want to do this job. My favorite is when they crack jokes for each other, like when they crack each other up, when Andrew Yang said they asked him. What would you say on your first call with Putin if he were elected? He said, sorry, I got rid of your guy. I got rid of your boy. And Elizabeth Warren was like, or maybe not sorry. And he was like, yeah, and they like laughed <laughs> or they compliment each other. I just like it when they uh, when they have those sort of moments of exchange with each other, especially when they're sort of flippant or funny. I'm I'm just here for that so much. I think America needs that desperately, too. It's not a small thing. Mm-hmm. I can't recall seeing President Trump laugh or smile. And I'm not saying Mm -hmm. that to be nasty about him. It's just not a part of his demeanor. And I think that we miss that as Americans. And I think that when Republican debates are all gloom and doom about immigrants and socialists, and when Democratic debates are all gloom and doom about the really serious systemic issues of poverty and race in our country and there's no levity and no joy and no room for relationship, I think it hurts our country. And so I feel like the way that these candidates are supportive of and collegial with each other and make room for just human moments that are fun and funny and uplifting, I think it matters a lot. Well, the next debate is December 19th. This one is PBS and Politico in Los Angeles. I'm pretty excited about that. There's less than a month ago, only six Democratic candidates have made the stage so far. We heard a lot about that from Cory Booker. He was emphasizing and basically making a plea like, I'm not up there yet. Do what you can. So Andrew Yang is the only candidate who's met the donor threshold. Tulsi Gabbard and Cory Booker are close. Tom Steyer has met the polling threshold, but is short of the donor requirement. So that's where we are right now. I assume that we'll probably have a few more dropouts before the December debate, but we'll be back there. So y'all should join us for that debate as well. I can offer a little breaking update because I get 10,000 text messages and emails from the Booker campaign a day. I think he has met the donor requirement now. Oh, they raised. Good. They had more donors in the, in the 24 hours post-debate than they did when they launched the campaign. Oh, good. So he did make his moment. Good for him. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box. 
plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi-connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day. Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. All right, Beth, I did the math. You want to know how many hours of testimony were this week? I don't know if I do, but tell me. Over 24 hours of testimony this week. I feel that. That doesn't even include Taylor and Yovanovitch. My fingers feel that. I have tweeted... I mean, I I love everybody, and I am so sick of Twitter. I can't even stand it. (sighs) So we decided summarizing 24 hours of testimony was perhaps not the best approach, even if some of this testimony was pretty dramatic. But I think what is not helpful about this testimony is that it's not really playing out chronologically. We're jumping back. We're going back and forth a lot to different meetings and different time spans. And so we thought we would just walk through the chronology, and pinpoint where these testimonies really added new layers of understanding. So quick review about the history of Ukraine, former Soviet state. There's a real tension in Ukraine between people who are still loyal to Russia and the vast majority of Ukrainian citizens who want to be part of the Western world, trading with Europe, trading with the United States, governing in a 
fair, transparent, democratic fashion. And that came to a head when Ukrainian President Viktor Yanukovych, who was very loyal to Moscow, was ousted in an uprising. Less than a week later, after that uprising, Yanukovych, as we've heard in this testimony, flees with like $40 billion to Russia. And Russia comes to Crimea and annexes it. And then in May, the same time frame, this is when we have Hunter Biden joining the board of Burisma Holdings, and we have a new Ukrainian president, Poroshenko, who promises to transform the Ukrainian government. And our domestic officials are excited about Poroshenko. They're going to start working with him. And over time, their excitement fades because this is a really hard thing to do, and Poroshenko doesn't deliver on all of the reform that he promised. Beth, will you humor me for a minute? I just want to talk about where some of these witnesses were during this incredibly important moment in Ukrainian history. Sounds good. So George Kent is serving as the senior anti-corruption coordinator in the European Bureau and then as deputy chief of mission in Kiev. So this is during 2014, 2015, after Yanukovych leaves and Poroshenko is in. Okay. Bill Taylor is the executive vice president of the United States Institute of Peace and is advocating for sanctions against Russia. Marie Yovanovitch is serving as the principal deputy assistant secretary for the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs, which is not to be confused with George Kent, who is currently the deputy assistant secretary of the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs. Do I know what the difference between a principal deputy assistant secretary and a plain old deputy assistant secretary is? No, I don't, but I don't think it's relevant. Okay. Lieutenant Colonel Vidman is a foreign area officer for the Army. He's serving in this role at the U.S. embassies in Kiev, Ukraine, and Moscow at this time. Jennifer Williams is serving as the special assistant to the Assistant Secretary of State for Near Eastern Affairs at the State Department. Fiona Hill was writing the first edition of her book for the Brookings Institute, Mr. Putin, Operative in the Kremlin. Ah, uh, I guess Gordon Sondland was running hotels. Rick Perry was the governor of Texas. Rudy Giuliani, I think, was a cable news operative, and I think Donald Trump was still on TV. I think that about sums it up, where everybody was during this incredibly moment, incredibly important moment in Ukrainian history. Just wanted to provide that context. So let's fast forward to 2016 and 2017, when the Obama administration is, like much of the global community, especially in the EU, working to support Ukraine in dealing with corruption, and everybody is focused on the Prosecutor General Shokin. Here's why the Prosecutor General keeps coming into focus, because the key issue with corruption is whether the justice system is working politically or under a fair, transparent rule of law where we prosecute people who actually did crime, not people who are standing in the way of a good business deal, right? So that is why all this attention on the prosecutor general's office. This is where Joe Biden gets involved, and he exerts this pressure, too, along with lots of other people to say this prosecutor general is not getting it done, needs to go. So he resigns and we get Lusenko, the new prosecutor general, who, like President Poroshenko, everybody likes it first. We're always optimistic about a new person, <laughs> right? It's kind of like how I feel at the beginning of baseball season every year. We, we start off strong. <laughs> we also have Ukrainian officials revealing off-the-books payments to Paul Manafort, who resigned from the Trump campaign and is now in prison. Do we have any context for who was 
pushing the revelation of these off-the-book payments to Paul Manafort? I mean, everything I read just is Ukrainian officials. But, like, which Ukrainian officials? I do not know which Ukrainian officials, and I have not done the deep dive that Devin Nunes would like me to, apparently, on Alexandra mm-hmm. Chalupa and people in the United States who were getting information about this from Ukrainian officials. So I cannot speak to the validity of any of that. It is on my list to do a nightly nuance on because I want to know where Nunes is getting his information, what's real and what's not real. I just can't say that today. I mean, it's not that I'm concerned about whether the Ukrainians were involved, quote unquote, in the 2016 election, because if we ask Fiona Hill, (laughs) she has some very clear words on this, that it is a fictional narrative that has been perpetrated and propagated by the Russian security service themselves. Believe that. I just kind of want to know, like, which team was it like the pro-Russia team pushing this, like revealing these off the book payments? I just want to know. Some of the like which part of the government was behind this, not because I think it's like a big, massive conspiracy. I just think it would provide some background. Well, I think something important that we all need to understand when we consider how Ukrainians might have felt in 2016 is that candidate Trump was constantly Mm -hmm. saying nice things about Vladimir Putin, who was actively at war with Ukrainians in their country. Candidate Mm -hmm. Trump was equivocating about Crimea. It is not surprising at all that Ukrainians would not have wanted candidate Trump to win this election. That is different than deliberately putting false stories into our media, than the state security services mobilizing bots to take over Twitter and Facebook than actively meddling in our election as a state actor. And as Dr. Hill testified, individuals all over the world are always going to have opinions about our elections because they mm-hmm. matter. But I think Adam Schiff did a really great job of succinctly saying a tweet here and an op-ed there and a statement to a reporter over here is not the same as a coordinated state-sponsored effort to meddle in our elections. And we must keep that distinction in mind. Right. I don't think it's – yeah, I think that's totally true. I don't know why it's hard for even Donald Trump to say – Oh, I can see why they probably weren't thrilled at the prospect of me being president. I mean, that would require a a level of self-awareness he doesn't have. But I think the important part of all this is we had another listener reach out and say, why wasn't if Trump was so concerned with corruption in the Ukraine, why weren't they doing anything about it in 2017 and 2018? And you do have during that time period, Trump and Giuliani beginning to speak about Mainly the Ukrainian plot in 2016. I use plot in parentheses because that's a conspiracy theory with no evidence. And what you also start to see about around this time is more activity from Parnas and Freeman, the Ukrainian associates of Rudy Giuliani. Here's an interesting fact I had not put together. Do you realize that Lev Parnas and um, Colonel Vidman were born like two years apart and have very, very, very similar stories about how they came to the United States. I did not know that. I thought you were going to ask me about Lev Parnas and Devin Nunes being pretty tight, which is starting to be yeah, reported in the media. We found out this. So and I think that's the thing here, right? In this 2017, like once Trump is elected up until sort of, let's say, late 2018, We don't really have a lot of information because we don't have testimony from Trump or Giuliani or Parnas or Freeman or 
like what was happening, why they were talking to Lutsenko so much, why they were beginning to badmouth Yovanovitch. Like we just don't know. I mean, one listener sent us an article that I think is helpful, which is they were trying to manipulate the gov- the Ukrainian government and thought they had a good beat on on a path forward. Then we have the shocking election result in April of 2019. And you see things dramatically speed up at that point. So we have this whole conversation going on about Zelensky. Our people are excited about Zelensky. They want the president to be excited about Zelensky. The president is just focused on Ukraine as now his mortal enemy because Ukraine apparently didn't want him to be elected based on what Giuliani is feeding him. And even though lots of people like Ambassador Bolton, like Fiona Hill, are thinking perhaps the president should not get on the phone a lot with him because we don't seem ready for this, he does. And from Lieutenant Colonel Venman, we learned that Trump called Zelensky in April but did not talk about corruption at all, although the call summary said that he did. And then... On April 24th, we have Marie Ivanovich recalled dramatically from Ukraine after being publicly humiliated in the press. And then on April 25th, we have Joe Biden announcing his run for the presidency. So up until this point, I mean, I think Ivanovich's testimony is dealing with Parnas and Freeman's efforts to have her removed that were successful. And you see sort of a real dramatic uptick in that activity once they realize Lindsay is going to be present. Okay, so then the conversation starts to shift to what's going to happen with Zelensky and his inauguration in May. We think Vice President Pence is going to go, but Giuliani is still globe trotting around the world, having all these meetings with um, Zelensky advisors and people who've previously served in the Ukrainian government and sort of causing a lot of trouble. Do you think that's a fair description? Yes, I would say that. So you have Mick Mulvaney then come in, and he tells Rick Perry, Kurt Volker, and Gordon Sondland, hey, you're in charge of diplomacy in Ukraine. Giuliani's um, causing all these problems. You guys go and clean it up. Also in May, you have Ambassador Taylor asked to go to Ukraine as the charge de l'affaire to replace basically Yovanovitch, and simultaneously, all in May, you have Trump then telling Pence explicitly not to go to the inauguration of Zelensky. And we have a call on June 28th that made clear that some action on a Burisma-Biden investigation was a precondition for an Oval Office meeting. And this is what Bill Taylor told David Holmes, according to David Holmes' later testimony. Then you have this July 10th meeting, which we have heard so much testimony about. So much about. about. Where you have a top official from Ukraine, Danny Luke, meeting with Ambassador Sondland, Ambassador Volker, Rick Perry, and John Bolton in Washington, D.C. If you didn't know, later they moved to the ward room. (laughs) There's just, they took a picture. There's so much testimony about that. And this is where Dr. Hill and Lieutenant Colonel Venman have seen enough, and they contact John Eisenberg, a National Security Council lawyer, to say, hey, 
things have gone off the tracks here. We are openly having Gordon Sondland telling these folks about this explicit conditioning. We are interjecting all these domestic politics into national security issues, and it is wrong. And I think what was so helpful having Ambassador Sondland and Dr. Hill testify back to back is Mm -hmm. that she said today, you know, she was pissed off at Gordon Sondland through all of this because she was saying, you are leaving us out. We are not in the loop. We are not all coordinated. And he's saying, who else do I have to coordinate with? I'm getting my instructions from Donald Trump and Mike Pence and Mike Pompeo. I'm cool. You should be cool with whatever I'm doing. Who's really in charge here? And what she said today is, I did not understand until I heard his testimony and saw the emails with Secretary Pompeo that Gordon Sondland was absolutely telling the truth, that he was talking to all the appropriate people. And those two channels had just diverged on what was important and supposed to be happening. Yeah, I love that she was like, yeah, he was on a domestic political errand and we were trying to coordinate foreign policy. And so we actually were on different planes. But his testimony, he was emphatic. Everybody was in the loop. Everybody was they were asking me to come in and do this. And everybody in the loop, meaning the secretary of state, the vice president, the chief of staff and the president. And so the idea that we were going rogue or we are some shadow foreign policy is real. He was very defensive about that. And we got clarifications about this meeting in Sondland's testimony and in Volcker's testimony that upon a closer reflection, they do believe that investigations were brought up with regards to be necessary to get a White House meeting for Zelensky. Because up until this point, everything we're talking about is getting Zelensky to the White House for a meeting. We're not talking about military aid. Now, I quibble, and tell me how you feel about this. I quibble with analysis that's like, it's just a photo op. It's not as important as military aid. False. It is also very important to the security of Ukraine and the United States that Zelensky is seen as being supported by the United States with regards to Putin and Russia. So I don't know why everybody kind of blows the meeting off like it's not a big deal. It's not as big a deal as military aid, but it's also not just a cute photo op so everybody can, you know, feel fancy. Zelensky was emphasizing this and pushing for this because he saw it rightly, I think, as essential to his country's security. We've also heard testimony that the military aid is largely symbolic. Ukraine is buying javelins with its own money now. According to David Holmes, the purpose of the javelins is not to be over there and operational. It is to say to Russia, hey, the United Mm -hmm. States cares enough about this to pay for defensive weaponry. And that's the point of the photo op as well. It is a this is all about messaging to Russia. That is the point here. And that was the policy of the United States. We can debate all day. And I have had some internal debate about like how much. Should the United States be putting its finger on the scale here? And I don't know. And I think there are points where the way we talk about other countries in connection with our foreign policy gets really messy and and bleeds into the kinds of errands that have in the past caused us major problems. And you and I have spent a lot of time on the show talking about what those problems are. But that was the policy and that was the point of everything. And the story here is that all of that gets sidetracked because of what the president wants Sondland to extract as a deliverable. That's mm-hmm. his word. Deliverable. From the Ukrainians. Mm-hmm. 
So that's the July 10th meeting. Taylor also has a meeting in Ukraine with Zelensky's chief of staff and foreign policy advisor on that day. He's feeling frustrated because they're coming to him and saying, we feel like we're getting wrapped up in all this. On July 18th, the military aid is officially withheld. And that's when you see this flurry of messages from Bill Taylor, who's really caught in between, I feel like, these three amigos and the Ukrainians. He's frustrated. He's embarrassed because they are saying, you know, what's going on? Why don't we have the aid? He doesn't have a great question. Nobody has a good answer to that because it's not like they put in paper. These were phone calls saying we want the aid withheld. Nobody was saying, you know what, we are withholding the aid because we want Biden investigated. Like they weren't putting it in an email or writing out in a contract. And I don't understand why everybody's like, well, do you know why the aid was withheld? Well, no, because they were keeping it a secret. Like they're going to spell it out explicitly, but whatever. So then July 25th rolls around. We have the now infamous call between Trump and Zelensky. And we have the call memorandum from that conversation placed in this code word access server. And we had some testimony about that at these hearings. Mm-hmm. Lieutenant Colonel mm-hmm. Vindman said that he did not see that as nefarious, but he understood that they wanted to keep that record within a smaller group of people. Tim Morrison agreed that he didn't think there was malicious intent. He was very worried about leaks around that call. He was worried that politically it would be exceptionally damaging for that call memorandum to leak out into what he described as an overly partisan Washington. Tim Morrison described where that call call memorandum ended up as kind of an administrative mistake that they did a little overkill on the storage, but that was just kind of a communication issue. Lieutenant Colonel Venman suggested that it was deliberate, but again, not nefarious. So then we also have Laura Cooper's testimony at this point, because she is coming in and saying that she saw emails that seemed to show the Ukrainians knew that the aid had been frozen by this point, which is important because often the defense is, how could he be being extorted if he didn't know the aid was missing? But her testimony seemed to be coming about to show that, no, in fact, the Ukrainians did know the aid had been frozen by July 25th. So later in July, you have Ambassador Sondland going to Ukraine You have all these conversations in Ukraine. David Holmes, for example, testified that President Zelensky mentioned to him that President Trump brought up sensitive issues in the July 25th call three separate times. So we're helping the Ukrainians figure out how they respond to what the president wants. And Ambassador Volker and Ambassador Sondland are working on a statement that Zelensky can make to CNN so that he gets his White House meeting. Within that time frame as well, we have this lunch between Ambassador Sondland and David Holmes and two other State Department officials in Kyiv where we all now know David Holmes. Here's Gordon Sondland talking on a cell phone just openly to the president, who's very loud, about ASAP Rocky and the Kardashians and Jay Leno and how President Zelensky loves his ass and will do anything he asks him to do. And he hears President Trump say, so they're going to do the investigations. And Sondland says, yes, they'll do whatever you say. And then Holmes asked, does he care about Ukraine? And he says, no, he cares about basically he cares about the important stuff. And Sondland's recollections of this phone call are not super specific because he says, I've talked to him about 20 times at this point. I have pretty good access to the president. And so I don't remember explicitly every single conversation. But David Holmes is like, this is not something I've ever witnessed before. A person just calling up the president on their cell phone and talking about all this stuff flippantly on an open line. And so he has pretty clear um, memories of this phone call and the president's 
Um, and Sondland reporting that the president didn't really care about corruption in Ukraine, basically. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code podcast15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. So that's 26 the day after the phone call. Then we have this statement being worked on. At this point, on August 12th, the whistleblower complaint is filed. And the Ukrainians then comes, come and say, we would like an official request 
for these investigations. And Bill Taylor's like, let's talk about whether that's appropriate or not. (laughs) And then again, the timeline just keeps increasing, increasing. On August 22nd, you have Sondland emailing Pompeo and Kenna saying, should we block time in Warsaw for a short pull aside for POTUS to meet Zelensky? I would ask Zelensky to look him in the eye and tell him that once Ukraine's new justice folks are in place in mid-September, that Z could be able to move forward publicly and with confidence on those issues of importance to POTUS and to the S. Hopefully that will break the logjam. Pompeo replies, yes. The story about the aid being held up breaks on August 28th. Somewhere around here, Gordon Sondland gets Senator Ron Johnson involved. Ron Johnson goes to the president, tries to get him to release the aid. He later says that he understood this whole situation to be about generalized corruption and definitely related to what happened in 2016. And Ron Johnson is willing to say that that's just all fine and good by him. Mm-hmm. So on September 1st, Sondland tells Yermak at a meeting in Yar- Warsaw that the military aid would not arrive until Zelensky promises to pursue the Burisma investigation. Taylor confirms this. Kent confirms this. Morrison confirms this. And Sondland confirms this. Now, he clarifies in his testimony that he is presuming the investigation and the aid are linked, that no one ever explicitly tells him that the aid will not be released until there is investigations. But there's all this testimony from Sondland that two plus two equals four. And I just looked at the facts of the matter and presumed that that's what was holding the aid up. Zelensky had a meeting with Mike Pence at this time. It sounds like that meeting went fine and that Vice President Pence pretty well sticks to his briefing books and talking points. September 7th, Trump tells Sondland that there was no quid pro quo according to another readout. And this is where we get into, there's no quid pro quo. I don't want anything from Ukraine. September 9th is when we have the text messages that we've already talked about at length between Bill Taylor and Gordon Sondland. And this is where Bill Taylor is reaching the end of his rope. It's crazy to withhold security (laughs) assistance to help a political campaign. This is where we have the call where Trump says, I want nothing, I want nothing to Sondland. Sondland then sends that ridiculous text message to Bill Taylor five hours later saying that he was relaying what Trump denied. And things start to heat up with Adam Schiff because we're all hearing now that there's this whistleblower complaint that has been shielded from the Intelligence Committee, which should have it. And wouldn't you know, on September 11th, mm-hmm. that aid was released. And I think that is the critical fact here, that it yeah. took the press reporting about the aid. It took the entirety of the national security apparatus objecting to the aid being withheld. And it took a public announcement that there was a whistleblower complaint that Adam Schiff was not going to let go of for this aid that Congress appropriated to go to Ukraine to be released near the deadline for that aid expiring in the fiscal year. And you have all these career professionals. I mean, that was the contrast, right? You have with Sondland, even though I found Sondland's testimony pretty explosive because he was making clear I, everybody was in the loop. I was following the president's orders. But you have all these career foreign service people saying, I was just shocked and appalled. I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen a president pursue foreign policy this way. I've never seen a president use foreign policy to pursue their political enemies. They were all shocked and appalled by what they were seeing. And it's clear, like, reporting it to the superiors, going to lawyers. 
And I don't really think any of the Republican defenses or attacks on these people stuck because they were all such professional convincing witnesses. Here's how I view it. If you really want to debate the facts of what happened here, not the meaning of those facts, but the facts themselves, you must believe that both George Kent and Bill Taylor are never Trumpers, that Lieutenant Colonel Vindman has some disloyalty to the United States because he was born outside the United States, that Jennifer Williams is a never Trumper, that Gordon Sondland, who gave a million dollars to the president, is actually working against him, that the witnesses, that Dr. Hill is disloyal to the president. You have to believe that every single person— that Marie Ivanovich is like a woman scorned, right? You have to believe mm-hmm. that every single person independently has an agenda to work against this president and that the credible voices in the room belong to people like Rudy Giuliani. It just strains credulity to get there. So I think the argument really cannot be about the facts. Now, I get that there's a whole Mm -hmm. world of people that are totally here for Devin Nunes and Jim Jordan's nonsense and Chris Stewart. I mean, there are people who have just made such fools of themselves in service of this narrative. But there are people willing to believe, yes, the whole world is against President Trump. Yes, the whole world is capable of orchestrating this kind of smear campaign. But the thing is, even if you believe that, you have to also be able to somehow unhook it from the president's public statements himself, his Mm -hmm. own words, to dispute the facts of what happened here. Everything hangs together. Are there discrepancies in individual memories and meetings? Small ones. Yes, there are. And there are people who say, well, this is not what I thought was happening. Maybe it's what you thought were happening. But overall, We know what happened here. We know. And the question is whether you think that's acceptable. And if you think it's unacceptable, whether it should be decided by Congress or decided in the context of an election. But I just don't think there's much else to talk about around it. Well, it seems like the issue, you know, everybody keeps waiting for Will Hurd at the end of every testimony because he used to work in the intelligence community. He's a moderate and he's retiring. And at the end of Fiona Hill and David Holmes' testimony, he was basically like, I see it. I don't really debate the facts. I'm not sure it's impeachable. I guess that's where we're at if we're having like an actual conversation with reasonable moderates and not Jim Jordan, because I don't really want to engage in a conversation with Jim Jordan. But I like Will Hurd and I respect Will Hurd. And I don't see how somebody who could work in the intelligence community could see all this and say, I don't debate the facts with you. I understand what happened. I think it was inappropriate. I just don't think it was impeachable. But that seems to be the argument they're making. That's a reasonable argument to have, I think. I think that is an argument that we can have. I think there are a whole lot of people, and we're going to talk more about this next week, who are in the mode of this was wrong. This is what happened. It probably is impeachable. We shouldn't impeach because the Senate won't convict. That's a different category of discussion. Altogether. The facts themselves, I think, are here. I I just I cannot imagine. I've really asked myself, what could I learn that would significantly alter my understanding of how this all went down? And I just don't think there is anything. I'm willing to have that conversation. I suppose they're having they're making it in good 
faith. I just I'm I'm coming to understand that it's hard for me to detach impeachment from Donald Trump. It's I don't there seems to be a conversation about how serious the process of impeachment is and this might just be my own perspective and personality. I don't really think about impeachment as a separate process I have a philosophy on. I only think about impeachment with regards to the specific presidents who come under impeachment. Does does that make sense? Like, I'm not worried about, like, how big of a deal must it be for us to invoke this process. I'm just looking at the president in front of me and thinking whether I think they should be removed for office for this behavior. And my answer is absolutely yes, Um, no matter how big a deal impeachment is. But that seems to be where a lot of Americans are coming from. That it's such this process is such a big deal that we should think about that almost separately and weigh that separately from the behavior of the president in front of us. I think there's something healthy about that. I think we need ends people and means people in every conversation. And I think to the extent that we really want to stare at how big of a deal is impeachment, we should do that. Now, in my mind, I am a process person and I can't imagine this not being impeachable, I can entertain a good faith argument about it and completely see the other perspective. But in my mind, impeachment is a really big deal and it exists for this situation. Mm-hmm. But I would I, I feel better about America if that's the fight we're having than trying to smear individual witnesses and th- blow smoke about the Steele dossier and just confuse the facts. Oh, I think that's what everyday Americans are thinking about. Now, I don't think Jim Jordan and Devin Nunes are reflective of everyday Americans, even, well, I don't know, they might be reflective of the base. But I think sort of just the moderate middle and people who are trying to look at this and think through it fairly, they're not doing that. Yeah, I, I that makes me feel good. That's what should be happening in this process. And I think this process is important even if you think he shouldn't be impeached, because if you think this should be resolved by an election we would not have this information going into an election were it not for this process. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of things Mm -hmm. here that give me hope that America is working the way it's supposed to be working. And I say that after 24 hours of hearings plus a debate. I I did not expect our conversation after 24 hours of congressional testimony in today's episode to end on such a hopeful note, but I'll take it. I will take it as well. And we will talk with you again next Tuesday with more updates. We appreciate so much how many of you have reached out to say that you value what we do on social media and here on the podcast. We really are trying to give you good information, recognizing that most of us cannot hang for 24 hours of testimony. So thank you for that gratitude, which does give us a boost when it's all getting to be a little bit much. Thank you to our team for their patience this week with late files and lack of responsiveness from us and all the other things. Dylan, Elise, Simeon, we really appreciate you you all. Everybody have a terrific weekend and keep it nuanced, y'all. Dylan Garvin produces Pantsuit Politics every week. Thanks for making us sound better, Dylan. Elise Knapp is our managing director, which means we could not make it without her scheduling, organization, feedback, and creativity. Thank you, Elise. We couldn't make Pantsuit Politics without support from our listeners. Go to patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics to learn how you can receive more nuance and help us make the show. Special thanks to our executive producers who have committed to supporting us in a major 
life-giving way. Our executive producers are Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, David McWilliams, Joshua Allen, Linda Rucker, Martha Bernatsky, Melanie Cravey, and Tiffany Hassler. Our theme music is composed and performed by Dante Lima. The music under our ads is composed and performed by Dylan Garvin. Learn more about our lives, live events that we're involved in, and what we're reading each week by signing up for our weekly newsletter at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com. And connect with members of the Pantsuit Politics community by following us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.